0: The Green Urbanist and the Climate Crisis for City Dwellers Hello and welcome. Yes, it's Friday, it's the 6th of August and I'm Anthony Day. This is episode number 350 of your Sustainable Futures Report. The main part of today's episode is an interview with Ross O'Kelly of the Green Urbanist podcast up in a moment. In other news, the Siberian heatwave has led to new methane emissions. Foreign control of North Sea oil licences threatens UK's net zero goal. Three and a half average Americans could be causing one death. High-speed rail HS2 may never reach the end of the line. And there are new insights from Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's climate crisis spokesperson. More than half the world's people live in cities and urban areas and the way these areas are built, maintained and managed is highly important to them all. Cities have a vital role in mitigating climate change and a key concern is adaptation to the effects of the climate crisis. I spoke to Rosso Kelly. My guest today is Rosso Kelly. He's the presenter of the Green Urbanist podcast for urbanists fighting climate change ross welcome and thanks for talking to the sustainable futures report
1: thanks so much anthony it's a pleasure
0: well my first question is what is a green urbanist
1: Uh, it's not a a, a term that i've coined and first unfortunately um the way i like to think about it is that it's uh, someone who works in cities so that could be an architect a planner a policymaker uh, and someone who's committed to uh addressing uh, cities' city's um, contribution to climate change, but also uh, the quality of life, the health and the happiness of residents. So that's sort of my own uh, summary of it.
0: So you've got a pretty niche audience then of, of specialists in urban planning and urban living.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of architects, uh, a lot of people who are studying, um, but also people who are working, um, architects, planners, urban designers, that kind of thing
0: and how do you as green urbanists fight climate change
1: yeah it's 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 a really good question and it's 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 very multifaceted so i suppose there's sort of two directions with this one is that cities are uh huge drivers of energy use and so uh you know cities have um uh, need to be reducing um their Uh, the energy use that they use, particularly in transport, but also in how they uh, use electricity in buildings. And within the Northern Hemisphere, that would mostly be through heating homes. It's incredibly energy intensive. Uh, And so those are sort of the two big things uh, that cities need to address in terms of bringing down overall emissions. Uh, But then there's also the question of, well, we're already experiencing the effects of climate change. We're seeing things like the the extreme heat dome in uh, British Columbia. Uh, we're seeing mass floods all over the world at the moment. Just London yesterday, also China, also in uh, in Germany and Belgium. Um, and so there's a question of how do cities uh, adapt themselves to this new sort of shifting baseline of extreme weather? Um, and so those are sort of the two directions that uh, sort of urbanists need to be to be moving in.
0: My question is: How quickly, how swiftly can you move towards adaptation and? if possible, to mitigation. How, how quickly can the actions you take have the effects we need?
1: It's very, very tricky because um, uh, large-scale infrastructure projects, and some cities will now, will, will certainly need to be thinking about large-scale, what you might call green and grey uh, infrastructure or hard infrastructure projects. These are things like flood barriers or hurricane defences and that kind of thing. These things take years or decades to to plan and then to build out. So it is almost too late, still worth doing, if you have the money invested in, in good uh, infrastructure to improve the resilience. Um, but then there's also things you can do which are, have a much more local uh, influence. Um, and I'm a big proponent of what you call green infrastructure. And so this is planting trees, replacing concrete with uh, natural surfaces, uh, bringing in a lot more natural elements into cities. Um, and these basically help to to buffer the city against uh, things like flooding and things like heat waves, uh, because they help to reduce the air temperature. Uh, and as as we will, uh, we are already starting to see more common and more extreme heat waves hit uh, cities in the UK and, and around the world. That kind of, <clears throat> if you can bring the ambient temperature down by just a few degrees through having more tree cover, that's that could be a life-saving device for someone who's vulnerable. So I think that's really key.
0: Aren't we going to need to get society at large on side, not just the specialists that you've been talking about? Uh, For example, during lockdown, there have been a lot of low traffic neighbourhoods introduced. Now, that has led to lower air pollution. That's led to a lower number of traffic accidents. It's also led to a very intense backlash from a lot of people who will not stand for it. Are we going to see the same sort of backlash? And, and if we see the same sort of backlash against climate measures, how are we going to address this?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's It's been really interesting to follow the low traffic neighbourhoods um, around the UK because it has been. I mean, for someone like, like me, who spends all my time talking about, oh, it's great to be walking and cycling, it's great to take public transport, to see people defending their private car use so strongly, it sort of comes out of, uh, I think, many... The people who are uh, who are proponents of these measures, it comes out of left field a little bit, and they think, "What? Well, I thought everyone would love this." Um, so, if you're absolutely right, it's we have to uh, take people along with us, and I think there will always be people who are, let's say, conservative by nature. They don't they like where they live. They like the way things are. They don't want things to change. Unfortunately, we've sort of we sort of don't have that luxury of allowing things to stay in stasis because the status quo is not serving us. And whether that is air pollution or traffic accidents or emissions from road transport, we know the science tells us we have to address these things. And so I think it is a question of uh, engaging with people early in these projects, uh, speaking their language, not coming out and using professional planner speak that nobody understands um, and and trying to just be human about it and, and try to help them. Uh, along in the process to put their their fears to rest and take on what they say i mean it's not about uh bulldozing over over people it's about trying to um take on their fears and their uh what they want from their place and trying to get something that actually serves people um it's it's a tough job but i think we need to figure out how to do it quite quickly
0: (laughs) i think you're right quite quickly you were saying just now it's almost too late People have been saying it's almost too late for the last 10 years and more. (laughs) Maybe the fact that the extreme weather that you referred to just now has actually made headlines, finally, even in the mainstream media, maybe this is the turning point. But I've seen a letter in the paper this morning where people are starting to deny this. Um, The the correspondent says, well, listen to David Bellamy, if you remember the the late david bellamy who was a naturalist he didn't believe in climate change and he was an expert all sorts of things like that are going to be attributed and i fear that our debate is going to be very very difficult to to promote
1: yeah that being said i do think that the the full out climate deniers are a, 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 a minority and i think if you look at like polling data I think most people in the UK do believe in climate change and consider it to be an important thing. I think where the sticking point comes is when people realize they, their daily lives have to change.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and one thing that I always talk about on my, on my podcast is that we have an opportunity as we have to take action on climate change. We have an opportunity to make that a really positive change and actually to improve people's uh, quality of life, people's health. Um, and the way they live in cities. It will be different to how we live now, and that's what's scary for people, and that's what's hard to get some people on board, Uh, but it could be better. Uh, And that means having less traffic on the streets, having more children playing uh, safely on the streets, having cleaner air, having more equitable access to parks, green spaces, trees, nature, Uh, all these are are fantastic things. And most people would agree that they want more of it. Um, And so it's a question of communicating that and actually delivering on it.
0: Just turning back to urban infrastructure, there's uh, a bingo hall just up the road from where I'm sitting. I think it's less than 20 years old. I mean, for what it is, it's quite a smart building. (laughs) They're gonna knock it down and build 223 student flats. Demolition of a building of that age—is that can that ever be justified?
1: It's very difficult because if you look at the breakdown of the carbon emissions uh, in construction uh, over the whole life of a building, uh, it's something that professionals call whole life carbons, where you look at the construction, the life of the building, and then the the end of the building where it's demolished or it's or it's uh, retrofitted or something. Um, the mo- single most biggest contributor to that is uh the materials the concrete the steel that goes into new uh, a new building a new building it's incredibly carbon intensive uh much it's much bigger than actually the energy use in a building uh, even though we talk a lot about uh energy efficiency and that kind of thing Um, and so if you have a building that's only 20 years old it's it's a very it's very difficult argument and i think it really has to be only in specific circumstances now it could be uh, to, to allow that to happen, to demolish a whole building and to build a new building, I don't know what the sp- specific circumstances of this this bingo hall is. It could be that it's just uh, maybe it was poorly made uh, when it was uh, when it was first built, and you know maybe it's not structurally sound. I don't know what the details are, um, but there is a strong movement of retrofit first uh, amongst uh, built environment professionals, as they're saying. Uh, in most situations, you can actually retain structures um, and, and refurbish them or add extensions to them, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's definitely uh, one element of it. But I suppose to put it in perspective as well, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the buildings that will be around in places like London and cities in the UK in uh, 2050 Uh, 90% of them are already existing. So the big, big leverage point in terms of reducing carbon emissions is not so much in things that are being built now, although it is important to get that right. It's uh, how do we reduce the the energy intensity of uh, buildings that are already existing. So all the terrace properties, all the suburban housing, all the office buildings that will still exist in 30 or 80 years time. uh, And that calls for huge amounts of investment into retrofitting and to making these more energy efficient um and so that's i think a m- more important goal to aim for
0: so retrofitting retrofitting insulation so that we don't lose the heat that we pour into these properties what do you see as the preferred method of putting the heat in in the first place the government mm-hmm. has said an awful lot about <laughs> Do you see that as the way forward or are we going to convert our boilers to hydrogen or are there any other ideas that you feel are going to solve the problem?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly gas boilers are being phased out uh, over the next, uh, I think it's the next 10 years. I think it's 2030 is when uh, you'll no longer be able to have your your gas boiler in use and everything will need to go to electric. Um, It's difficult. It's part of a wider energy grid question. Um, There's a great report that was put out by the uh, Centre for Alternative Technology, which is based in Wales. They have a great report called Zero Carbon Britain, and they outline their own scenario for how Britain, using existing technology and methods, could achieve uh, net zero carbon anytime we want, basically. Um, One thing they say is that uh, it's very difficult to supply enough energy uh, for the energy demand we have now, which is why it's so important to, as you said, you know, re- stop the heat leaking out of our buildings, um, to re- to retrofit buildings so they're more energy efficient, and then it becomes much easier to supply that electricity for heating through uh, things like uh, wind. Offshore wind is the big one in the UK because we have we're blessed with a very windy coastline, especially up in Scotland. Um, but it would also it could also include things uh, a mixture of things like hydro. Um, or, or potentially things like biofuels, although that would be a much smaller um, percentage. So I think for people who are interested in thinking like, what's the future energy grid of the UK? What could that look like? That report makes a really interesting case for you know, how we could do that without relying on any future technologies.
0: Ross, if you were to pick one issue which you would give top priority to as far as tackling the climate emergency is concerned, what would it be? <coughs>
1: difficult to pick a top priority but what I'd like to do is take this opportunity to maybe flag up uh, an issue that I think is flying under the radar for many people which is that I mean if we if we think about that Canadian town i think it's called uh, Lytton that had the heat dome over it there was 250 people and the entire village got destroyed by by these wildfires now most of the people uh, survived i think there was only two deaths luckily um Those people, and you think, well, 250 people, that would be relatively easy to to rehouse uh, those people somewhere else. What happens when that's a town of two and a half thousand people or a city of 250,000 people? Scientists are um, very concerned that later in the century, we will start to see a massive climate refugee crisis as people are dispossessed from um, vulnerable parts of the world. Uh, where cities, towns suddenly become uninhabitable for humans. Uh, Where do those people go? Do we we have plans in place to uh, humanely deal with people who are fleeing? Uh, Are are we even considering this in our politics? It seems like, in fact, we're moving the opposite direction. We're shutting down borders and we're leaving people um, to their fate. And so I would like the international community as a whole to start taking this issue really, really seriously because it may be people in pakistan in india and the other side of the world but it may be people in britain it may be people in europe who are suddenly um suddenly don't have a home and don't have a place to go and we have to be ready for that
0: do you see any initiatives like that coming out of cop26 the united nations climate conference in glasgow in, in november
1: hmm. i'm really not sure i'm really not sure i haven't been following it probably as closely as i should i should have <laughs>
0: Right. Well, thank you very much for for sharing your ideas. Now, the Green Urbanist podcast, that's available on all good uh, podcast sites. Yes, indeed. Are you able to give us a preview of what's coming out next time?
1: Uh, I've just had a uh, a podcast, rather special episode come out this morning, which because it's with my brother, who's a clinical psychologist. And we talk about uh, the the phenomenon of climate anxiety or climate despair, as it's sometimes called. A lot of people involved in in action on climate change feel a lot of uh, anger, sadness, anxiety about what's happening. And he helps us just to understand that these feelings are actually totally normal um, and that there are ways you can help to manage them. Um, so that might be a really good uh, episode for people.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing that. So that's the Green Urbanist podcast available on all your favorite podcast sites. And I've been talking to Ross O'Kelly. Ross, thank you very much for sharing your ideas and talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. My pleasure. Ross mentioned the Zero Carbon Britain reports from the Centre for Alternative Technology. There's a link on the website. And in other news. Amid all the news about extreme weather, including wildfires in northern latitudes, you probably heard that Siberian forests above the Arctic Circle have been on fire. The heat wave, which made everything dry enough to burn, has also led to the release of methane, which you'll remember is a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2, at least in the short term. In an article published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA, the team led by Niklaus Fritzheim, Professor of Geology at the University of Bonn, noted that anthropogenic global warming may be accelerated by a positive feedback from the mobilisation of methane from thawing arctic permafrost. Beneath the permafrost, in some areas, there are carbonate rocks, which also can leak methane once exposed. Even deeper, there may be gas hydrates in fractures and pockets of the carbonate rocks in the permafrost zone, becoming unstable due to warming from the surface. The researchers do not expect a catastrophic release of methane, as higher temperatures in previous millennia have not triggered such an event. However, they believe more research is urgently needed to quantify the volume of greenhouse gases within and beneath the permafrost and the rate at which the warming climate will cause it to be released. Last time, last Tuesday, in the extra edition I've just published, I mentioned ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlements, and how foreign companies can sue governments if they bring in legislation or regulations which could restrict company profits. This may, well, restrict the UK government's ability to wind down oil production in order to meet zero carbon targets. As noted last time, the UK is the most vulnerable country to this in Europe, having some £120 billion worth of fossil fuel infrastructure owned by foreign companies. A study by the Commonwealth think tank and research by climate journal Desmog reveals that more than a third of the license blocks in the North Sea now have a private or state-backed controlling interest, with fossil fuel firms from China, Russia and the Middle East playing an increasingly dominant role. There is concern that the UK could delay or water down climate change legislation for fear of being sued. Greenpeace report that UK North Sea oil rigs release as much CO2 as a coal-fired power station, but of course that must be dwarfed by the emissions from the fossil fuels they produce. Unless we keep oil and gas in the ground, we will destroy our environment. Not just the pretty flowers and the birds and the bees, but the land and the oceans that produce our food and the forests that produce the oxygen we breathe. If we insist that oil and gas must remain in the ground, it will cost some people a considerable amount of money. Expect them to fight with every possible means at their disposal to recover those losses. In a paper published in Nature Communications, the authors find that the lifetime emissions of three and a half average Americans cause one excess death globally. This is not an attack on Americans. It's an illustration of the fact that one person's carbon emissions contribute to another's shortened lifespan. They point out that in the current method of calculating integrated assessment models, IAMs, that determine the social cost of carbon, human mortality impacts are limited and not updated to the latest scientific understanding. In the light of their findings, they believe that the true social cost of carbon is $258 a tonne, rather than the current figure of $37 a tonne. Carbon pricing at this level would close many industries overnight, and it illustrates the urgency of carbon reduction. Although substantial advances in climate impact research have been made in recent years, the authors warn that IAMs, that's the Integrated Assessment Models, are still omitting a significant portion of likely damages, not just the mortality effect. These models underpin a wide range of programmes designed to mitigate or adapt to the challenges of the climate crisis. If this revised valuation were adopted, far more schemes would be viable and value for money. Governments may resist such a change as it would lead to calls for more investment. Of course, that might be difficult in the short term. But the social cost of carbon demonstrates starkly the long-term cost of doing nothing. And now to transport. HS2, the high-speed railway from London to Birmingham and the north, has been mentioned with scepticism many times in the Sustainable Futures report. Dissenting voices are getting louder and the railway is increasingly seen as another of the Prime Minister's vanity projects. It cost £40 million to cancel London's unbuilt garden bridge, but it's estimated that it would cost £6 billion to cancel Aces 2 Still, says Steph Spiro in the Express, that's a drop in the ocean by comparison with the £100 billion that the project is now expected to cost. Linking Leeds and Manchester to London via Birmingham with this high-speed line is seen as an important part of levelling up the north, except that numerous commentators are now predicting that cost overruns mean that the line will never be extended beyond Birmingham. It will merely bring Birmingham into the London commuter belt. Fare levels have not yet been decided, and the viability of the line is based on passenger growth and trends which existed before the pandemic. There is no sign that these levels will return as we adjust to new ways of working. Spending £100 billion on HS2 leaves nothing for the rest of the railway network. No electrification, no upgrading of the east-west line from Liverpool through Manchester to Leeds and Hull, nothing for the northern commuter lines still relying on 50-year-old trains. £100 billion is believed to be the likely cost of a comprehensive social care programme. That money would build dozens of hospitals or schools or fund mental health services or a myriad of other projects serving thousands of people, not just the wealthy few who want a quick trip to Birmingham. It'll take only £12 billion to establish a catch-up programme for school students. The government has allocated just £2 billion. The project director has resigned. Of course, HS2 will probably go ahead, if only because stopping now would leave a scarred countryside, felled ancient woodlands and tunnels to nowhere as a massive monument to incompetence and vanity. And finally, more insights from Allegra Stratton, the PM's spokesperson on the COP26 climate conference. She says she's not going to give up her diesel car for an electric one. This is because sometimes she visits family in Scotland or Wales and she wouldn't want to set out on a 200-mile trip if she had to stop and recharge in order to complete her journey. A number of people commented, including the president of the AA, a motoring organisation. He said most electric cars now have a 200-mile range and anyone making a 200-mile trip should take a break for safety's sake. And the car can be recharged at 80 percent in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee the most worrying aspect of this story is that allegra doesn't seem to understand the damage that a diesel car is doing if it's inconvenient to go electric she seems to have no concern about the consequences for the climate surely not the sort of person who should be handling communications from cop26 the uk is chairing the conference The PM wants the UK to be seen as leader in addressing the climate crisis. This level of ignorance from a government spokesperson is not a good start. And that's it for another week. Remember, this is the second episode this week. Last Tuesday, I published Extreme Weather, Extreme Warnings. Don't miss it. And yes, you've had two for the price of one. If you feel like making a small contribution to the costs of producing this podcast, please become a patron at patreoncom slash sfr Another interview next week about a new synthetic and sustainable problem. Until then, think carbon. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Bye for now.